0: Back in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. We may get through it. We possibly may. Um, let's read this. My plan tonight was to go through some of these destructive heresies uh, that have been kind of prevalent in the church uh, ever since the early church was formed, and that's uh, kind of progressed through the church history, and even some that are still in effect today. And um, I wasn't going to touch on the end of this uh, verse, but I may just do it right at the start and uh, that way we can end with the destructive heresies because if you have read ahead and you've, you've heard me mention um, verse 1 here, if you're not careful and if uh, we don't do study on this verse, it may trip us up, especially towards the end. And, and so we'll read this and then I will talk uh, about the very end of the verse And then go back up to the heresies and finish with that, okay? So let's read it again. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. All right, let's pray. Father, we come to You again, and we ask for help. Lord, we ask that we would be faithful to Your Word, that we would hold to your word, and that we would never sway from your word. Lord, we know that it is settled in heaven. It is the inspired word of God. It is truth. So God, help us and lead us into all truth tonight. Sanctify us by your word, which is truth. Help us tonight to be on guard, be on aware, be alert of the attacks, the false teachers, the false heresies or the heresies that come, the false teachers, the false preachers, the false prophets. God, help us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Well, if you've read ahead any at all, you may have gotten a little bit confused about the last part of verse 1. Because for so many weeks and so many months, we have labored the point that Christ died for who? The sheep. He died for the elect. He died for those who were given by the Father to Him. And then He went and He made that redemption a a reality on the cross. We know that we read in Acts chapter 20 today that what? That He bought the church with His blood. We have chapter uh, after chapter after chapter throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Hebrews. We have Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10 that tells us about this particular atonement that it was for the sheep and it was for the elect and what that redemption and that atonement meant. We don't believe that he died for every single human being on the cross because if he died for every single human being on the cross, then the wrath of God would be satisfied for every single person on this earth and there would be no need of eternal punishment in hell that'd be a double wrath. That's not what propitiation means. It means you've satisfied the wrath of God. That's why our sin has been forgiven. Our debt has been paid for. That's why he can say he laid down his life for the sheep. And that's why he can say he purchased the church with his blood. But we got a problem. That it appears that we have a problem. It says that even denying the master who bought them Talking about these false teachers. Now, I just told you today, they were false teachers. They were not true Christians. They were the, the, the visible church, but not the true Christian. And now here we see this reference. It says, they deny the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. We must be very careful. Because here's what I think happens a lot of times. We will have chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after verse after verse after verse that, that clearly clearly tell us these truths and then we come to one that's a little bit obscure and we say we're going to throw everything else out of the way we're giving up on it all but we have to dig a little deeper is this talking about a a redemption a a purchasing in a salvific way who's the master for it to be in the atonement it has to be reference in the son can't be referencing in the father because the father didn't lay his life down on the cross it was the son is this in a redemptive way? Is this in a salvific way? What's going on here? Well, this is why it's interesting here that we see that in the last chapter of 2 Peter, and we read it today, but Peter tells his readers in verse 16, speaking of the things about what Paul has written, he says, some of these things are hard to understand And then it says that those who are untaught and unstable, they distort them, and it brings their own destruction. Sometimes it takes a little bit more than just reading across the surface of a verse and saying, ha-ha, gotcha. We are to study to show ourselves approved. We are to dig into the Word of God. So let's do that momentarily, briefly here, to really determine what is being taught here. What is Peter saying? What's the context? Well, let's look at some of these words, and I wasn't planning on doing this today, so you don't have a sheet for this. You will next week. I will. I've already got it typed out. You've got it. I just don't have it for you to have tonight. So either take notes or just listen really good. We look at this word, master, and this comes from the Greek word what we get despotes. You may know it in our modern translation as a despot as one who is a a supreme authority, a supreme ruler, no one higher. Now, we see it in today's society as someone who's hard-nosed and ruthless. That's not what's being taught here. This is a authoritarian. It is the highest supreme ruler and authority that there is. This word means Lord, Master, especially of slaves, denoting supreme authority, sovereign, unrestricted power, absolute dominion, Confessing no limit, uh, limitations or restraints. Is this talking about the Son here? Well, what's interesting is if you look into the Greek a little farther, that we see the word curios, which is constantly used about the Son. I was reading this the other day, and I forget exactly how many exact instances the word curios was used in the New Testament. It was hundreds, meaning Lord, meaning Master. And the majority of those words are in reference to Jesus. So we don't have curios here. We have despotase, which is interesting to me. Why would that be? Do we have any other examples in the Bible that the the word despotase is used of the Father? Yes, we do. In Acts chapter 4, we read this really briefly here. I'm going to spend a little time because these are verses that um, people that disagree with Reformed theology will take. They'll read it on the surface level and they'll say, aha, what do you say now? Well, we're going to tell you what we're going to say because if we study it a little bit, I believe the answer becomes more clearly obvious. In Acts chapter 4, verse 24, Peter and John had been arrested. They were threatened and they were released. And in verse 24 it says this, And when they had heard this, they lifted their voice to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and all the sea and all that is in them So that word there is the word that they use for despotes, which is referencing the Father. And we know that because it goes down a little farther and it says, "'Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our Father, David your servant, said, "'And why do the Gentiles rage?' This is a quote from Psalm 2. "'And the peoples devised futile things. "'The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together "'against the Lord and against his Christ. "'For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus.'" He's talking about the Father. This is a reference to the Father. Despotes is used to to reference the Father here in Acts 4 verse 24 through 27. So that's an interesting use of the word, but it gives us greater context for the next part. He says that He bought these people. Is this in a redemptive way? Is this in a salvific way? Was this on the cross? Well, we know that if we can point to it being the father, then it can't be the son and it can't be in a salvific way because the father did not lay his life down for the sheep. It was the son. So if we can make this case that it's of the father, we know that it's not salvific. What's also interesting is this is if you go to different places in the Bible, such as like first Peter one, 18 through 19, and you go to other places like Acts 20, which we were at today, and you go to Ephesians 1, 7, and, and Titus two fourteen, and, and you'll go through all these different places in the Bible that speaks about the redemption and the purchasing and the atonement of Christ for His people, you're always going to find something. You're going to find the purchase price. Let me give you an example. See if you can find the purchase price in this Verse. Knowing that you were not redeemed, that's what being bought means, being purchased by God, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. There's the purchase price. We read in Acts chapter 20 today. What do you say? And he purchased the church with what? His blood. Something mysteriously is missing here. The word is used, not curios, and there's no purchase price. You see how we start to just study this out a little bit, and it's not so clear-cut of a slam dunk to the other side to say, ha-ha, it's not a particular atonement. This has nothing to do with redemption here. He's not saying he bought these salvifically. He's not saying he purchased them on the cross, and then, uh, then they fell away. That's not what's at stake here, because we have to look at what's going on. Do you remember when I mentioned earlier today that... When we go to 1 Peter, in the first verse, he tells us that he's writing to these aliens that are scattered. And this word that is used is called diaspora. And that diaspora is used primarily as a reference to the Jews, the scattered Jews. We see that in the Old Testament when they were in exile, they were scattering. And we also mentioned that he lists these places here, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And some of these places that he's writing here, uh, these people are residing in are the same places, or some of them are the same places where the devout Jews had come from to Jerusalem on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So if this is starting to reference the Jewish people or Israel, because we know that it says that the false prophets were among them in the Old Testament, Israel. And if they're among them here, then we start to get a a taste and a sense that this is talking to a, a, a... A looking back, if you will, and also a looking forward to this Jewish background, this Israel meaning. And where do we see this? Now, how can we put that it's the Father? How can we say that it doesn't revolve around the redemption of the cross and that purchasing? And how can we say it involves Israel? Is there a place anywhere in the Bible where we can take those things and find that? Yes, there is. We can find it two places in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, in Exodus 15, verse 16, we see this passage. Speaking of the nation of Israel, when we also see that he bought, this word can also mean deliverance from. And can you think of a time where in the Old Testament that the father delivered a nation out of slavery. Of course, he's talking about purchasing Israel as a nation nationally. It has nothing to do salvifically. Listen to what it says here in Exodus chapter 15, verse number 16. Terror and dread fall upon them, but the greatness of your arm... They are motionless as stone until the people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. Talking about Israel. Not salvifically, not redemptively. He bought them and delivered them nationally. They're his chosen people. Now, let me ask you a question. Was everyone in Israel a Christian? (laughs) No, the majority wasn't. It has nothing to do with salvific being bought here. We see that in the Old Testament. So, who did the, who did this in the Old Testament? The Father, the Despotes. No purchase price of the blood here because it's not salvific. But he's talking about how he took Israel and brought them out of slavery and established them as a nation. That's what he's talking about being bought. We also have a reference to that also in Deuteronomy thirty-two six. Same language. Israel's being bought. Israel's being purchased, not salvifically, but nationally. He's delivering them out nationally. Now, does this make sense? Let's think about it. If there were false prophets in Old Testament Israel, and then he's saying there's false prophets among the Jews now, and if these false prophets are from a Jewish ethnic background, then they've been bought nationally. But these people who claim to have this heritage and this background are denying the one who bought them as a nation and made them his chosen people even in the Old Testament. That's what's going on here. This has nothing to do with these people were bought on the cross and then they just decided not to be a Christian. They fell away from it. He's saying, listen, he bought Israel as a nation. These false prophets were among the nation of Israel and among the Jewish descent, and they have been bought ethnically, brought out of Egypt. And these people that are false prophets in the Old Testament, and even now, they're denying the one who bought them. That's what's at stake here. It takes a little work, doesn't it, to go back to see that there was a reference in the Old Testament about a nation being bought, but not everyone was saved. Not everybody was redeemed. Not everybody was a Christian in Israel. Another view that some would hold, and is to say that these people are professing to be Christians. They are professing to be Christians, so in a sense they're claiming that Jesus bought them, but denying them and that action in their lives. And like, they, they profess that these are, they're Christians, they profess as being Christians that the Lord bought them, but their life would speak otherwise. And we get verses like holding to a form of godliness, but denying the power, denying the one who they claim bought them, and we can also see, I, I know some uh, other views on this would be that this is like a master to a slave, that he has, full, uh, he has full control over all his creation, that he's the sovereign ruler over everyone that is on this planet. And in him being the sovereign ruler over, over everyone in this planet, then he commands obedience from everyone. And if they do not obey him, that brings about swift destruction. And we see that in Ecclesiastes. Listen to the last three or two verses in the book of Ecclesiastes. The conclusion when all has been said is this, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. You want to boil it down? The book of Ecclesiastes says this, fear God, keep his commandments. And if you do not do that, it says, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, which is good or evil. So if he's sovereign ruler over every one, And they owe him allegiance, and they owe him servitude, and they refuse him, and they deny him. That's going to bring about swift destruction, not in a salvific sense that he's bought everyone, but as this terminology goes to master and slave, he would have authority over all of them, and the denial of him would bring about judgment. I think all three of those things can harmonize together in this text. These false prophets were not bought salvifically or redemptively on the cross. This is, looking back, Into the Old Testament, how God the Father purchased and brought out the nation of Israel, and those false prophets were involved. They were in that heritage and that ethnicity, and they denied this God. Brought judgment. And we were talking a little bit after church, and that sets up perfectly with the book of Romans. Because why? Because of the disobedience and the hardening of their hearts of his people. The gospel was made known to the Gentiles. Do you remember that in Romans? He came into his own, his own received not. The hardening of their hearts was what brought the gospel to the Gentiles. It fits in beautifully here. So, if someone says to you, see, we can then have an answer. The purchase price isn't there, and this is, I believe, talking about the Father. And it goes back to Israel. What's amazing about that is the next few verses. Uh, starting in verse 4, 5, 6, 7. Guess where he's going to go back to as a reference point? The Old Testament. He's going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to talk about the angels. He's going to talk about Lot. He's going to talk about uh, Balaam and Balak. And you're going to see all these Old Testament references that the people of Israel would know. He's talking about the rescue out of Egypt, the forming of the nation, these false teachers were among these people who were bought as a nation. They denied the God that, uh, that was in sovereign over all, and this brought about their destruction. Okay? So if you're wondering, I believe that's how the best way to interpret that ending of that verse is. All right. Moving on. Secret heresies. So, secret destructive heresies. We mentioned this as we were closing the service today, that this clever, stealthy, secret introduction of these lies and heresies is not anything new. We went all the way back to the garden, didn't we? It says the serpent was more crafty than all the others. He was crafty. And he brought in his message deceitfully, slowly, methodically. And we see the same thing with these false... Teachers. Now, what does the word heresy mean? Let's get into that, and we will breeze through these at rapid speed. Heresy are doctrines or teachings that change the nature of the faith so fundamentally that it can no longer be trusted to be saving faith. Heresy is a gross and dangerous error, voluntarily held and factitiously maintained by some person or persons within the visible church in order to some chief or substantial truth or truths grounded upon and drawn from the Holy Scriptures by Okay, necessi- nes- nes- <laughs> I can't say it, necessary. necessary consequence. I was thinking 40 different pronunciations. It wasn't coming out, and I didn't want to sound ridiculous more than I already had. So I just, heresy is teaching anything in disagreement with the fundamental essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Something that's important, though we mentioned it a little bit today, that heresy is not the same as error. Heresy is the choice to abandon the widely accepted teaching on an essential doctrine as recorded in the Bible and embrace one's own view. That's why we can disagree on infant baptism. That's why we can disagree on eschatology. We can disagree on those things. There's not heresy there. There's not a... That, there's difference. Heresy is to preach another gospel and stray from that word that Peter says was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So... With that being said, there has been many heresies that has come down the pike. They have come down into the church, and we're going to go through these just briefly. The first one you'll see on your sheet was one of the biggest. It was one of the most threatening heresies that invaded the early church. When Peter and Paul and all these first century Christians were living, this was the one that they faced all the time. It is called Gnosticism. And this comes from the word where we get gnosis, and if you, you've used that word a million times and think about it, when you go to the doctor, what do you get? You get a diagnosis. Or if you want to know how it's going to be, you get a prognosis. That word gnosis means knowledge. You want to know what the prognosis is, what it's going to look like in the future, what knowledge, what the remedy or the knowledge of what is ailing you in a diagnosis. And this is where this word comes from. It is Gnosticism because this is what their whole view is held to. It says this was present at the time of Peter. Gnostics divided the the world into physical and spiritual realms, and they believed that matter was inherently evil. So your body, evil. The, the, The world that is created, evil. That's why they don't believe that our God, the God of the Bible, created the world. Because it is evil. All material matter is evil. So there was a lesser God, they claim. An evil God who created the world because a true and living God wouldn't create this world because all matter is evil. They believed that the goodness in something was in the spiritual realm. It says they believed that everything done in the body had no meaning because real life exists in the spirit realm only. And here's where they came down to. The reason they're called Gnostics is because they did not hold to the word of God as their source. They believe they have spiritual knowledge that is greater than the apostles. And here's how they believe one came to Christ. By a special, spiritual, supernatural, metaphysical, enlightening of your mind. And only certain people could have this knowledge. So they would walk around and they would look at the people following the apostles' teachings and they would say, oh, holding to the Bible, huh? I get it. You're not of superior knowledge like we are. Gnostic. Remember, that's knowledge. We have a special enlightenment. We have a special knowledge. And it's not about repentance. And it's not about uh, adhering to the truths of the Bible for salvation. Salvation is just that if you've been given this enlightened knowledge and you've reached these spiritual realms that no one else has, that is what separates you from the bad. And therefore, you can receive salvation. That's wild, isn't it? That's crazy, That's what was in view at times of the apostles when they were walking on this earth and these were the things that they would be fighting against. They believe, the Gnostics believe that salvation is gained through the acquisition of special divine knowledge and enlightenment which sets a person free from darkness and into salvation. They believe Jesus' body was not real and denies his humanity. They hold to the idea that since the body is bad, Jesus' body only appeared to be real. We're going to talk about docetism here in a little bit. As a result, he did not die on the cross or have a bodily resurrection. How could he? Because the body's bad. It's just spirit. And don't worry about redemption. Don't worry about atonement. Don't worry about all that. Maybe you'll just reach that level of enlightenment in your mind and it'll set you free. And if you think that's gone, it's still present today, but it's under a different name the New Age Movement still present today in the world. It's enlightenment of your mind to a higher spiritual realm. Not with Christ, not with the deity of Christ, not with the atonement, not with repentance, not with anything the Bible teaches. But if you can ascend to your own metaphysical, spiritual enlightenment, then that is what brings you complete joy and salvation. So the same heresy that the apostles faced in the first second The first century, in the early church, in the first several centuries, we still face it today. It's just under a different term. It's heresy. It denies the deity of Christ. It denies his earthly walking on this earth. It denies his atonement. And it denies the means of salvation. We go to the next one. It's Sibelianism. It was named after its founder, Sibelius. It found the height of its teaching in the third century. And this view claims that there's one God, but not three divine persons. And I'll give you the, the, <laughs> the end of this as well. That Do you realize this is still prevalent today? Sibelianism, which was popular and hit its height in the third century, is still present today. And it is being taught from the pulpits of many churches, of ministers that you may know. Here's what this view teaches. That we believe that the Trinity is one being with three divine persons. They're co-equal, co-eternal. They are all God. It is one God. It is one being. But there's three divine persons with three distinct roles. They've been around from all eternity. They've, they have life in themselves. They, they, they weren't created, but they've always been. In, in the beginning, before there was any earth or from as far as eternity passed, we know that the Father was present, the Son was present, and the Holy Spirit was present. They were in harmony, they were together, there was union, there was fellowship. But this view in the third century hit its height and said, that's not true. And basically, what they would say is that they can't, you can't have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit present all at the same time. So they will shift into modes. They will have different manifestations. Sometimes God is the Father, sometimes He's the Son. And sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. We run into we've mentioned this. There's a problem in a few times. I don't know how they exegete the baptism of Christ. when Jesus was physically on the earth being baptized. the Holy Spirit' descending on him like a dove, and the voice from heaven is crying, "This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased." We get into a conundrum when we start to think things out a little bit. Or how about? Uh, On Mount Transfiguration, which we talked about last Sunday, Christ is here. He's being led by the Holy Spirit in His earthly ministry and the voice from heaven again. This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. What about on the cross? How is Jesus crying out to the Father if He's the Father? Can't be. It falls apart quickly. And this was a heresy that was very prevalent in the third century. It's an attack on the trying nature of God. It's an attack on the hypostatic union. Sometimes it went by a different name, modalistic monarchaism, but that's not as prevalently known. And if you want to know, and you want to here's some examples of some people that actually still teach this, are you ready? Stephen Furtick of Elevation Worship. He's a modalist. That's what it's termed as now, that God shifts into modes. You see, we referenced him today. He's teaching heresy if that's what he's teaching. And I've heard him teach it. And unless he's repented, he's a false teacher and a false preacher and speaking heresy right now as we speak. Oh, but he's a great order. Yeah, that's what we, yeah, we just read about that today, didn't we? Great leadership skills, claim to be a Christian. But where's our ultimate source of truth? Is it in the popularity of a person or is it in the infallible word of God? It was deemed heresy. In the early church and now we as christians we're like well but he's okay it's all right it's not that big a deal what's the big deal if you attack the triune nature of god well we have many verses especially in the book of first john that say if you deny that you are not of god if you don't have the son you don't have the father and if you don't believe the son came in the flesh you can't be a christian and you can't be you can't be saved so what's the big deal very big deal Stephen Furtick teaches this. So does his mentor, T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes is a modalist. And the new up-and-comer who, if you go to the, any Christian or any bookstore, not Christian, well, you'll see him there at Christian bookstores, but if you go to Walden Books or, or Barnes & Noble or whatever it is, and you, you'll see his face, Michael Todd. He believes in modalism. And those are the people you see on the shelves. Those are the people that's prominent, selling their books. Why? For monetary gains, which we're going to find out is one of the things that the false teachers and the false prophets do. It's still prevalent today. If anyone denies the Trinity, they can't be a Christian. It's that simple. It's heresy. It was prominent in the early church. And as much as we want to hide our head in the sand, it's still present today. The next one we see is docetism. This comes from the Greek word dokio, which means to seem. This heresy was prevalent in the early church and held to the heretical view that Jesus seemed to be a human being but didn't actually have a body and a soul. I don't even know I don't even know how you come up, I don't know how you do this. But do you remember in 1 John chapter 4 today when I said we read that verse that said you have to believe that Jesus came in the flesh? This is in a direct rebuke on docetism. Listen to it. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. See, there's the flesh. It's important. You got to have the body, because if he doesn't come in the flesh, what does that mean? He didn't live a perfect life, He didn't meet the full righteous requirement of the law. He doesn't have blood to to shed for the atonement of his people, etc., etc., etc. He's not our high priest. He's not been tempted like we are. The list goes on and on. The body of Christ, the physical body of Christ, is prevalent and vital to the Christian faith. And these people say, well, he just seemed to have a body. He really didn't. Just appeared to be. Didn't. He goes on to say that every spirit that does not confess Jesus Confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and now it is already in the world. You see the big deal? Why is it a big deal to hold to the doctrine of the Trinity? To hold fast that Jesus came and he lived on this earth in flesh. Truly God, truly man. It's vital to the gospel. If you don't have that, you don't have the gospel. If Jesus didn't come in the flesh, then you guess what? You ready? You ready? We're not going to heaven. Simple as that. How big a deal is it? Because if he doesn't come in the flesh, we have no righteousness to which anyone can give us, impute to us, that will allow us entrance into heaven. He had to live a flawless, perfect life in the flesh. And without that, it attacks everything. Docetism. Adoptionism. Some of these are just bizarre Adoptionism held to the view that Jesus was adopted by God at His conception and this uh, return gave Jesus divine power. So Jesus was adopted by the Father at His conception, which gave them, He then received divine power to live out this life. Other views of this a little later on claim that Jesus was adopted by God and received divine power at His baptism. We'll move on from that one. Arianism. We, I remember when we were at Mark and Sherry's house and we were talking about uh, uh, the I Ams or the Ego I We mentioned this one specifically, but there's an Arianism. And this heresy was named after the 4th century priest in Alexandria, Egypt, named Arius. Uh, this heresy claimed that Jesus was not God, but was created by God as the first act of creation from a, from a misrepresentation of Romans 8.29, which said he's the, uh, the firstborn among uh, many brethren. He says, see, oh, see, that Jesus can't be God because he was created. He was the firstborn of many brethren. So they take that view and they say, oh, see, that Jesus is above man, but he's below God. So he's not really truly deity, but he was created by the Father. But you can still worship him because he's higher than man. And he was given this high exalted role by the Father when he created him. That leads to a lot of problems, doesn't it? Because if that's the case, then you, have, you do not have the Son of God in all His deity dying on the cross. You have a creature dying on the cross. That can't be. And you have another problem. Are we to worship creatures? Romans 1 says that that's a no-no. And if Christ is a creature, then any time you and I worship Him, we would be guilty of idolatry. You see how these little things that seem very simple, they throw the whole message off and leads them into heresy. This is what led to the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. This attack on the triune nature of God and the deity of Christ. And we see that Mormons and Jehovah's Witness still hold to a form of this today. You see, these things don't go away, they're still prevalent. It says next one is monetism. This one is, just hear me out on this and tell me if you see this in any charismatic churches. Are you ready? What do charismatics say? Only the true Christian that's filled with the Holy Spirit of God will speak in tongues, in these ecstatic utterances, and you truly see who's filled with the Holy Spirit. You've heard that. I've heard that. Well, that's what this guy taught. This guy's going to teach you some stuff that still is prevalent today, and you tell me how crazy this guy sounds. It was named after a self-proclaimed prophet named Montaneus who lived in Asia Minor in the 2nd century, which if you know the 2nd century, that would have been in the 100s, which would have been shortly after this letter, or less than a century later than this letter that Paul or Peter wrote to the same place in Asia Minor. I wonder if some of these letters that Paul or Peter had written they were reading this and saying false prophets will arise, false prophets will arise, false prophets will arise. And then cue uh, stage left here because uh, Montanaus on the scene, roughly 100 years after Peter had written this letter. Ah, he said they were coming. And here's one right here. Listen to what he believed. He taught that the Holy Spirit was continuing to work through him and gave him new revelation. Stop. Have you heard that from any of these people in the behind the pulpit today? I've received a new word from God. God has spoke to me that he's not spoke to anyone else. He's given me a new revelation. I heard from God and God says, "Sean, <laughs> that's let me tell you this. If someone says that I heard the voice of God run, cuz you didn't. I think it was MacArthur one time who said when you start the sentence with uh, but God told me, I stop listening. That's not how it works. If you want to hear from God, it's the infallible word of God. But you hear these false teachers, I have a new revelation, I have a new formula, God told me this, here's this, and it's all new. Well, so did Monteneus here. Including a revelation that Jesus would soon bring the new Jerusalem to a place called Phrygia. Second century, he said that God told him, that the eternal home, New Jerusalem, would be brought to a place called Phrygia. What's the Bible say? That's not going to happen? Correct. Not everybody that says, oh, the Lord told me. Actually, if you start the sentence by the Lord told me, pretty good indicator you're a false teacher, false prophet. He claimed to have the gift of prophecy and would speak in convulsive and ecstatic utterances that which were contrary to the truths that had been held by the early church. He stated that the Holy Spirit was working through him and speaking through him in his ecstatic utterances. Sound familiar? You see it in charismatic churches all across the world today. Let's speak in ecstatic utterances. Let's talk in gibberish. And that's how we're enlightened. We have the Holy Spirit. God's teaching us things. He's speaking to us things that you don't know. We've got new revelation. Listen, I'm going to speak in a tongue that you don't know, and I'm going to give you a new revelation. You see, this is the same stuff that was going on in the second century, and the church labeled it as heresy. If you're ever interested in speaking in tongues and how that came about, it's a very interesting little study that you, you find that the speaking of tongues was in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, which those people, we have clear documentation that says, how are these people speaking in our own language? Remember, they came from different places. They were coming and they were descending on Jerusalem and they didn't speak the same languages. But when the Spirit of God came and indwelled these people, the gospel message was going out. And what did they say? How is it that they're speaking in these tongues and we know our own language? We hear our own language. They're Galileans. How can they speak our language? Because it was a supernatural gift that God had given them so they could understand the language that was being spoken. But where's the other place that we see the gift of tongues being prophes- or spoken about? In Corinthians, the, cha- the the whole letter to the Corinthians. Why is that important? Well, because Corinth was a metropolitan area. It was the crossroads of all these diverse people. And it was, it was like a melting plot. As, as people would travel through there, it was a collection of different diverse backgrounds. And one of the pagan gods that was being worshipped in this time there, one of the thoughts was this, that, that these false gods and these pagan gods that sometimes if you could be so enlightened that these gods would overtake your body. They would literally take over your body, and including your tongue. And you would speak in utterances that no one knows. You would speak in these wild gibberish tongues and, and, and speech because these pagan gods had controlled your body and just you had no control. Isn't that wild? That the things that the pagan gods were giving or they were giving them credit to do is the same thing that we see in a lot of churches across the world today. It's not scriptural. And that's why I believe that Paul's saying, listen, some of you have been saved out of these pagan religions, and don't think that that's how the church and the order of the service is supposed to be. It's not chaos like that. Tongues is a language, a gift of a language to speak to further advance the gospel. Simple as that. But this man said he had false, or he had false uh, revelations. He claimed the truth, he claimed new revelations. He spoke in these utterances. He claimed to be the embodiment of the spirit of truth that is referenced in John 14:26. Let me read John 14:26 as this man thought this was him. It says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. This man thought he was the embodiment of that. His followers claim that his words and revelations were as authoritative as the scriptures. You see, this is where we got to be careful, because if some false teacher gets up and says this, God spoke to me and this is what he told me, then you know what we have to do? We have to throw this Bible away and we got to get a new piece of paper out and we got to write his new revelation down because this is a direct oracle from God. Is that what we think it's going to happen? No, the word is settled. There is no new revelation. There is no new word. If it's spoken of God and from God with that authority, then that means the canon of scripture is not complete. We must be very careful to what we listen to what people say, and what it means in comparison to the Word of God. Now listen to this. It says they claimed they were spirit-filled why, quote-unquote, regular Christians were not since they had revelations and spoken tongues and utterances and were also baptized with a special baptism. Does that sound familiar? Speaking in utterances, speaking in tongues... And they considered them to be special because they had this special gift. And all along, they were heretical. The next one is Nestorianism. This view is held by Archbishop in Constantinople in the 5th century. And this is an attack on Christ as well. This heresy held to the view that it was in opposition to the hypostatic union with Christ being truly God and truly man. This view believed that Christ existed as two persons sharing one body. This heresy was the final heresy that led to the church giving a final and definite response to the person of Christ at the Council of Chaldonia or Chaldon in 451 A.D. At the end of this, there's an excerpt there from Ligonier you can read. I won't do it for time's sake. But at the end of this, it attacks uh, the atonement and the work of Christ. It says he had to be a divine person with a human nature so that... As to give his human suffering sufficient worth to atone for many, Nestorianism gives us an insufficient atonement. You can go back and read that later. We got two more here. One is Macedonianism. This was in the 4th century, and it denied the full divinity and personhood of the Holy Spirit. So now here we go. We've we've moved on from attacking the Son. Now we're going to attack the Holy Spirit. This view that was held stated that the Holy Spirit was created by God, thus making the Holy Spirit subordinate and subservient to the Father and the Son. We see this today. The Holy Spirit gets abused, gets left out. It's just this mystical mist of just a feeling that passes by when, in truth, the Holy Spirit is a He and He is God. That's the truth. This heresy attacked the divinity of the holy spirit and we know that in matthew 12:31 blasphemy against the holy spirit is the unforgivable sin that's a dangerous heresy what are your thoughts on the holy spirit is it a thing no it's not a thing he he's god you see it's an attack all the way down the father the son the spirit and the last one we're going to talk about of history is Pelagianism. Pelagianism came from a British monk in the 4th century and early 5th century who, claimed, who denied original sin from Adam and claimed that people were born innocent and good with the ability to choose freely and do good all the time. The Pelagian heresy held to the view that God created all humans good and that humans are not born with an inclination to sin and are not in slavery to sin by their nature from birth as a result of inherited sin from Adam's fall. This view held that we are all born with the ability to choose and do good and do not need a supernatural regeneration to choose God, obey God, or do good. This is still prevalent today. That we're all born good. What do we talk about in the attributes of God? There's only one who's good, and it is God. There's none who's good. No, not one. There's no one who's righteous. Romans 5 tells us that we all have this imputed sin nature from Adam. We are born into sin. Psalm 51 says, in my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. We are by nature deserving of wrath. We are not neutral when we're born into this world. We are enslaved to sin. We do not have the moral ability to choose God. We are hopeless until he regenerates our soul and changes us and sets us free. But the Pelagian view said that man is good. You don't need regeneration to choose good and do good because you've got good inside of you. You've got good in your heart when you're born, except for the Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. It's desperate. But this is taught today. People are good. You can choose to do good. You don't need a regenerate heart to choose God. You've got good in you, which goes against everything the Bible teaches, doesn't it? They deny original sin. They deny our need uh, for a regenerate heart. They deny that we are dead in sin. They deny that that we are dependent on Christ. See, this attacks at the sovereign grace of God and salvation and says that man can rise up because they've got good in them and do the good that's required to bring about their salvation. Pelagian's underlying fault is its reliance on human freedom, free will, and willpower instead of the grace of God to bring about salvation. In saying that we all possess an inherent power to choose holiness for ourselves, Pelagius made the grace of God of no effect and placed all the ability in man rather than the grace and mercy of God. This was later condemned in the Council of Cartridge in 418 AD, and that was the same year that Pelagius was excommunicated from the church. Just to remind you all that in Luke 18, 18 and 19, only God is good. You see, these things are still around. Some people will deny original sin. Some people will deny our inability to save. They deny that we have complete depravity, total depravity, radical corruption. And they believe that there's enough good in us to rise up out of our fallen state and choose the things of God. This was a heresy in the early church ages. It's still around today. No one is good except for God. And we can't rise up out of our unregenerate heart and choose the things of God without a supernatural regeneration that comes in the form of Him bringing us to new life in rebirth and being born again so you got a pretty wide range of heresies that have covered the church throughout the years but we see some still in existence today i'll read through this quickly some of these heresies that are still in play today is that jesus is not the only way to heaven i listened to joel osteen in that interview if you've ever seen that on larry king live in front of millions of people is jesus the only way to heaven you know his answer. I don't know. Steve Lawson knows it as well. If you ever listened to that clip of Steve Lawson giving that rebuttal? It's amazing. If Muslims believe that Jesus is not the way to heaven and you believe he is the way to heaven, then they're wrong, right? I don't know. I mean, I think they love God. You see, we're so quick to say, well, I don't know. But the Bible says there's only one way to heaven. On the way of the truth of life. There's no one that comes to the Father but by me. There's only one name under heaven given to men to which we can be saved. If we claim, and there's any view that says there's more than one way to heaven, it's heresy. It's heresy. There's only one way. And you see even Christian churches today backtracking on that. Well, you know, you just be good. I think all the ways lead to Jesus, possibly. If you do good, it'll eventually get you there, I think. No, that's heresy. That's something we stand and we fight for. There's only one way. Some will say that Jesus is not God. This is what the Muslims say, right? We, they believe that he was a prophet. They believe that he was a good teacher. They're on board with you there. But what about when you claim that he's the son of God, he's the savior of the world, and he is deity? Then we, then we part ways. If you deny that Jesus is God, then you deny the Jesus of the Bible. And if you do that, you are not holding to biblical truth. You're just stored in the gospel. Jesus was created. We've mentioned that a little bit. Again, here's another Stephen Furtick reference. He believes that God broke the law for love. You can go back and find that in one of his sermon outtakes. He said that. God broke the law to save us. Except for the Bible says it didn't come to abolish the law, but it come to fulfill the law. I come to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. And if God broke the law just one time, do you know what he's not? He's not perfect. And if he's not perfect, do you know what he can't do? He can't atone for your sin. He can't be your propitiation, and he can't give you imputed righteousness. You see, just because they're popular, just because they sound good, just because they're great orators, what Are they same? It's the source of the words. It's, is it in alignment with God? And if you believe in modalism and you believe that God broke the law, you're teaching heresy. That's not a popular view. That's the truth. And many are being led astray. The Holy Spirit is not God. That's another heresy that's being taught. Humans are not sinful by nature. The Bible is not infallible. Here's a good one. Good deeds are what gets one into heaven. Or some will say all people go to heaven. There's a doctrine of justification going around. It's called justification by death. Now, you don't hear that a lot, but that term means that you're justified and you're granted entrance into heaven when you die. You just die and you're justified. Death by justification, that's heresy. But that's what people believe because they say, well, as long as they died, so therefore everybody's going to heaven. That's not true. That's absolutely not true. The Bible says the more will not be in heaven. There'll be more in hell than there will be in heaven. The gate is narrow. The way is very narrow. There'll be more in hell than there will be in heaven. Good deeds are what gets it done. Just be good. We'll all get there eventually. Denial of the atonement of the cross, denial of the virgin birth. That's important. We've heard that all of our lives. The the virgin birth is vital, but now you understand why. Because every human being born after Adam's fall was born with a sin nature, deserving of wrath, deserving of death. And if Jesus is born by ordinary means, guess what happens? He's born in that line, and he's tainted with sin. He can't be your propitiation, and he can't be sinless. The virgin birth is vital, and if they, anyone does not claim that, that is heresy. Denial of the resurrection. There's some stuff, and you may not know this. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but do you know that right now, Do you believe that justification is by faith alone? Please tell me yes. I need some head nods at least. I know we're tired. Yes, justification is by faith alone, not by works. Do you realize that you can go to the Council of Trent by the Roman Catholics and they'll never tell you this on the surface? That they said that anyone who believes that justification is by faith alone, they are to be anathmed. Do you remember that word? That means damned. They'll never come out and tell you this, but you can go into the Catholic uh, the Catholic, uh, the meetings they've had, the Council of Trent, and look through that. And some of their standards and the laws they've made in their doctrines and their regulations say that anyone who believes that justification is by faith alone, let them be anathemaed. Let them be damned. You see, not everybody that claims to be a Christian is a Christian. And not everybody that claims to be a Christian is our brother and sister in Christ. They believe it's baptism and an infusion of grace and mer- uh, meritorious works and sacraments and don't die with mortal sin and, and they believe that if you think that justification is by faith alone, which is what Martin Luther stood for in the Reformation, then you are a heretic and that you should be damned. You see, this is serious stuff. Worship of saints, worship of Mary. Do you know that they worship Mary? Mary they worship saints. That's idolatry. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. And that's heresy. There's a kenosis heresy. If you're you're familiar with Bill Johnson in Bethel Church, uh, he holds to this view that Jesus gave up all or some of his divine attributes, and he wasn't truly God when he functioned on this earth. He was just a man. And shows us that, hey, If Jesus was just a man empowered by the Holy Spirit, then everything Jesus did, you can do. That's a view. That's kenosis heresy. That's where we get that He emptied Himself in uh, Philippians chapter 2. However, there's a problem with that. That would make Him not fully divine. And if He's not fully divine, not the Son of God. We've got a problem at the cross. We've got a problem in in the life that He lived. And we've got a problem at the resurrection. That's heresy. It's being taught. I can tell you in one church specifically, it's being taught. Bethel Church, Redding, California. They believe in the kenosis, heresy. Talked about modalism there. We mentioned it earlier, that God is, shifts into modes. He's not the three divine persons. That's heresy. Repentance is not needed. God loves you the way you are. And let me ask you this. What is heresy? Distorts the doctrine of the gospel. Does that distort the gospel? Sure, it does. Repentance is not needed. God loves you the way you are. Isn't that what's being taught? Just come as you are. Well, yeah, we want you to come as you are, but we don't want you to stay as you are. We want you to change by the power of the Holy Spirit. God loves you. Whatever you want to do, do it. And we're going to learn as we go through 2 Peter a little bit more that these false teachers and prophets, they're they're saying, hey, live sensually. Live however you want to live. Antinomianism, just live. Because God loves you unconditionally. And then the last one we'll leave on is the prosperity gospel. We mentioned this a little bit. This is running wild, running wild, where who doesn't want this if you're, a, if you're an unbeliever? Think about this. Think about it just for a second. If all your life as an unbeliever, you hear, hey, come with me to church. Hey, come to church. And then you come to church and you hear this. Listen, you're You're good. But God wants to make you better. And God wants you to get that promotion. God wants you to have the most successful family you've ever had. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants to prosper you in everything you do. He wants to bless you. And all good will come. And then whatever you claim in the name of Jesus will come to pass. If you're an unbeliever and you hear that, what are you saying? Great. I want to be blessed. I want to have a good car. I want to get out of debt. I want to be promoted in my business. And I don't have to give up any of these sinful ways. I can just come and do this and speak all these things. And God will give me what I want. And He wants me to have all this stuff. Sign me up. But never once is there repentance and conviction and seeking godliness and holiness. One of the views of the prosperity gospel is they're little gods. We talked about Kenneth Copeland. There's other people that claim this. I think Joyce Meyer at one time had claimed this as well that we're all little gods. If you're a Christian, you're a little god. You can command the same things that Jesus commanded. You speak and it happens. And if you don't speak and it doesn't happen or if you speak and it doesn't happen, well it's just you don't have enough faith. It's distorting of the gospel. The prosperity gospel is no gospel except for a false gospel. Leading people astray. Holding on to the hope that one day they will be blessed to which the way that these people say they will be blessed. Set in church for 40 years, still as broke as you were before, waiting for that day. Waiting for that day when your faith really reaches the level to make it happen. Saying that God needs permission And he's waiting on you to speak those words, to bring the realities of your life into being. That's blasphemy. And you say, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Why have we spent all this service speaking about these heresies? Well, I think Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 10 tells us this. And you tell me if you feel the seriousness in this. And let me set the context really quickly. We'll read these last two verses and be done. In the letters that Paul writes, he's pretty friendly at the start of these letters. Paul, a bondservant of Christ, an apostle of Christ, grace and peace be to you. Oh, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. And he'll go into a good old spiel of just these greetings and salutations. But there's something different about the Galatians. He gets six verses into it and listen to what he says. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is, not, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We've read, we've read about them for the last three services. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, contrary to which we have preached to you, he is to be... Accursed. That's the word anathema. That means damned. You preach another gospel, you pervert the gospel, let you be damned. As we have said before, so I say it again. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to which you have received, he is to be accursed. And this is Tim's favorite verse. It was. For I am now seeking the favor of men or of God. Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant or a do loss, a slave of Christ. Now you tell me, do you feel the seriousness in the words of the apostle? He says, Let's skip the greetings. Don't you ever for a second distort the gospel of God, it's not your gospel. It's it's no one's gospel in here. It's not my gospel. It's no preacher's gospel. The gospel belongs to God. It's the gospel of God. It's His gospel. And how dare a human being, for one second, pervert it, distort it, change it into something that suits our selfish desires. He says, if you change His gospel, let that person be damned. Do you feel the weight of that? You see why we're spending a lot of time in this? It's serious. And I think the problem is that the church worldwide has taken it very lightly for so long. We don't care. that the words of our God are under attack. Let us never for one second distort His gospel. It is His gospel, and it is that gospel which is the power of God into salvation. And Jude verse 3 says this, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you to appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once handed down to the saints. Would you join me tonight in setting our hearts with great resolve in great boldness, in great firmness, in great diligence to do everything we can to contend for the faith. To contend for this word. And if it doesn't match this word, it's not truth. If it's not in here, it's your opinion. The gospel has been laid out. His truths have been laid out. It is our job as Christians to know those truths and to contend for that faith Because it is this word, this gospel, that if you're a Christian, came to your soul one day, that imperishable seed landed on that good soil and changed your life. Let us, with every breath we have, contend for this faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that in the middle of chaos, in the middle of trials, in the middle of heartaches, in the middle of battles, God, we have an anchor. It's you and your word. God, let us know that we have truth at our fingertips in your word, and we have truth that has been planted in our souls. God, you tell us that we are to hide your words in our heart, that we may not sin against you, and that we can cleanse our ways by taking heed to your word. Lord, we're sorry for the times we've been weak and not stood for truth, or we've been ashamed, or we've been lacking in boldness, or we've been lacking in knowledge. God, I pray that you would stir in us a desire, a passion, a boldness, and a diligence tonight to defend your word at all costs. And Lord, let us know that it is your word. It's not ours. You've entrusted us with this word and let us be diligent stewards of your word. Lord, because it is this word that's changed us. It is this word that sanctifies us. And it is this word that will carry us home until we're with you. We give you all the glory. We give you all the praise and we thank you that your word is forever settled in heaven. Amen.